Welcome to the Monthly Ideas Exchange podcast, brought to you by ASX, the heart of Australia's financial markets. Each month, we'll connect you to a range of leading industry experts who'll give you a look into the finance industry and deliver valuable insights. Hear about important market events, industry research, tips for your own market research, as well as innovative products to help you diversify your investment portfolio. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ideas Exchange podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Alex Pollock from Loftus Peak as we cover a range of very interesting topics, including what type of disruptive companies Alex looks out for, real life stock stories involving disruptive companies, how Loftus Peak are navigating rising inflation and China's recent crackdown on tech firms, and a whole lot more. So a great episode ahead, let's get into it with Alex. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the Ideas Exchange podcast. It's great to finally have you on today. Great to be here. Also, happy one-year anniversary. I know I worked on your products uh, a year ago, uh, but happy one-year anniversary. I believe we've just reached it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yesterday, in fact, and it's been a been a fantastic process, actually. So today's topic is disruption. It's a theme that's been really popular with investors this year, and we've actually seen a record number of investors flock to ETFs that provide exposures to what I consider as uh, disruptive themes, you know, such as cloud computing, battery technology, hydrogen, and clean energy. And what we've seen is more investors have been looking to take advantage of some of these long-term disruptive trends. So Alex, I wanted to spend a bit of time today to learn more about the investment case for disruptive businesses which I know that this is at the heart of uh, the Loftus Peak team, as well as the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund, as you mentioned, which is an active ETF available on ASX. Now, Alex, I think a good place to start is to get a better understanding of disruptive businesses. And I think a good way to answer this question is maybe if you could walk us through, you know, what sort of companies you look for uh, or focus on in the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund? Thanks for that question, Marty. So we're a disruption fund. We're not a technology fund. So The way we always talk about how this works is to say that, you know, thinking about the car, for argument's sake, and the building of the invention of the car 100 years ago, we've had 100 years of innovation in cars. You know, the first ones weren't that good. Power steering, power brakes, great stereos, air conditioning, automatic transmissions, etc. And that's all part of innovation. And, you know, loosely speaking, it's kind of an improvement in technology. We're a disruption fund, meaning that we buy companies that don't do that. We buy the companies that disrupt that 100-year model and essentially render everything that went before it obsolete. So the 100 years of cars was disrupted by the battery electric vehicle, which is changing the very architecture and delivery proposition of cars globally. And that's disruption, but it's not just disruption of the car company, because all of those, you know, innovations in terms of automatic gearboxes and, you know, turbos, etc. Electric cars don't require any of that. So all of that technology, as it were, is swept away. Mm. It's disrupted. In addition to that, obviously, if the car doesn't run on oil or fossil fuels anymore, but runs on electricity, which is sustainably sourced, then the oil industry as well, the energy industry as it stands, is also effectively disrupted. So we look for companies that are using the latest available tools in order to disrupt existing, you know, 50, 100 year models and grow, therefore, much faster because they are on the absolutely most modern wave of tools to execute their business model. And and that's how we found some success. Yeah, that's a good summary, Alex. And, you know, when I think of the disruptive theme, I kind of think you can think of it in terms of either a small company that's, you know, fast and growing, it gets a lot of revenues 
but at the same time, it's operating at a loss and does have a chance of going bust. Or on the flip side, I can think of a large company that's well-established, strong cash flows uh, and less downside risk. But the downside is that it doesn't have the revenue growth potential like a, sm a small company. So I guess my question to you is, uh, hypothetically, suppose you have these two disruptive businesses, one that can grow 10 times, but also has a chance of going bust. And then you have another one, this well-established company that grows 50%, but only 20%. Uh, downside, which is the one that you'd pick and why? It's not a hypothetical question, Marty. It's a question <laughs> that we, we deal with every day. And the answer is really simple. The biggest positions are reserved for the companies with the best returns, but the least chance of something going horribly wrong. And the, the smallest positions we own, we own in companies where things can go horribly wrong. Mm. And that's why we own them at very small positions. So the thinking behind that simply put is... We have a return budget, so to speak, that we try to make every year, whatever, you know, 15 plus, whatever it is. We don't mind taking a couple of one or two position, percent positions in the fund in companies that are more speculative without great cash flows, knowing that we've got 85 or 80% of the company of the fund invested in these more, I won't say stable, but very well performing big cap offerings that offer great safety. So the biggest positions are in the companies with the best risk-adjusted returns. And the smallest positions are in companies that, you know, can mm. grow 10 times, but we only have them at small positions because they only go broke. Tesla was a company like that when we first owned it five years ago. Mm. It could have gone broke, so we only held it at a 1% to 2% position. And then as it rolled out and, you know, factories were built and they started to hit their milestones in terms of cars being created, we increased the position, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we do it. Let's turn to a practical example. So I uh, I did a bit of homework before this podcast, and I, I looked at your most recent portfolio disclosure for the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund, and I can see that your biggest position is currently in a company called Qualcomm, um, which I think is a company that creates uh, semiconductors, software, and services for wireless technology. And it, it looks like this company represents around 14% of the portfolio. And it looks like it, you've held this company for quite a number of years. So could you go through some reasons why you like this company so much? Uh, you're absolutely right. It uh, is the biggest position. And we, we've we held it all the way since around about $50 or possibly even more. It's 160 now. And we held it because of their absolutely dominant position in 2G, 3G, 4G, and now 5G modems and chipsets for the mobile phone industry. It's completely fair to say that but for Qualcomm, the mobile phone industry would not be a fraction of what it is today. Mm. Um, and we held it at the, those weights because we saw as the largest position, because we saw it's an absolute imperative that this company will be very much a part of, you know, the 5G rollout and, you know, Internet of Things and the inclusion of chips in automotive, you know, in cars, et cetera, et cetera. And it's worked for us, right? And, and it was a company that was really actually quite cheap, in fact, really very cheap. And, and so for us, it held the most, the best risk-adjusted return profile. In other words, it had a commanding and important position in a mobile technology, and its risks of going down were very, very minimal. And so it has been, and it's really powered the fund in this year. It's, it's you know, we're close to on 20% return for the year to date. Uh, and Qualcomm's a significant part of that return. So it, exactly as you say. Well, you mentioned about 5G technology and Qualcomm, um, and we've seen, you know, huge rise in demand from semiconductors, right? So that's been a good tailwind for uh, companies like Qualcomm that focus on semiconductors. I read an interesting story just recently that some companies are looking to fabricate their own 5G chips 
So that I see is a headwind against Qualcomm. So Apple is an example, right? What, what are your thoughts on that? There's a reason that uh, only a couple of companies in the world can uh, have been successful in rolling out 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, and Qualcomm has been one of those companies. It is not a trivial exercise, and I'll tell you how non-trivial it is. Uh, and I don't know whether you're aware of this, but Intel had a very large division, a couple of thousand engineers and you know a multi-billion dollar budget trying to do 5G modems for Intel for supply to Apple. And in the end, they were not able to do it. And they sold, actually really gave that division to Apple uh, for Apple to develop the 5G chip itself. That should give you a clue as to how difficult it is that Intel itself couldn't make a 5G chip, but certainly not in time and not to the specifications that Apple wanted. Apple is now trying to do it itself. And we think that's fine. But the success or otherwise of, of uh, Qualcomm doesn't rely just on Apple chips. There are a number of pieces to that, you know, modems and chipset mm -hmm. business for Qualcomm. And again, we have a, a model that says what it would look like if Apple was making its own chips, you know, and that's priced in and it doesn't, you know, worry us at all, mm. actually, to be honest. So Alex, you know, we've spoken about some of the companies that you look out for. So let's look on the other side of the coin. How do you determine when is the right time to sell one of these companies that you own? Martin, we have a really disciplined DCF process. We don't operate on single period measures such as mm. PEs or EV to EBITDAs. That was a kind of style of thing that we did when I was an analyst at Macquarie Bank for a number of years. Mm. We don't operate on those things. We operate on DCFs because DCFs really, and, and I don't think anyone in finance actually argues this, DCFs mm. are actually the appropriate way to consider the valuation of companies. And so it's very simple. When a company exceeds in its share price, the value of our DCF, we will start trimming, maybe not exactly on that day, maybe a month later or a week later or something like that, but we will start trimming and we may even sell out. When a company falls below our DCF valuation, and it's a 10 plus years discounted cash flow valuation that we do, when it falls below that DCF valuation, we will most likely buy it. Again, not immediately that day necessarily, but we'll probably start to open a position. And that discipline of all the companies being put on the same, as it were, framework for valuation mm. has really enabled us to be very analytical and precise in terms of the companies that we buy and sell. We leave money on the table. You know, we, mm. we bought Tesla at one price, we sold it 10 times higher, and it's since doubled from that point. But we're not uncomfortable about that because it went through our valuation and we can't hold a company that's through the valuation because it's not true to our process. And it's the process that we have is what's enabled us to generate these returns over the last seven years. So we're highly disinclined to not follow the process after all the success it's brought. So speaking of Tesla, you've mentioned a couple of times and uh, you've actually answered one of my questions, which is great about Tesla and you know why you produced that position and why you eventually sold out of it. And I'm not sure if this is a coincidence or not, and feel free to correct me if I'm not, but I noticed that when looking at your fund reports, Tesla jumped out of the report. And then, you know, I think it was like a couple of months later, I subsequently saw Volkswagen, which is a company that I think, you know, it's quite similar to, to Tesla. You know, it's a, a producer of uh, vehicles, and I believe that they're entering that electrical vehicle space. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what, what was the motiva motivating factor behind buying into Volkswagen? We are in Volkswagen and quite simply, Volkswagen is the largest producer of motor cars in uh, the world at around 10 million units a year across a family of brands. They own Porsche, uh, Seat, Skoda, VW itself, Audi and a, a bunch of other and some truck brands as well. 
And the answer to the question is they have completely effectively marked a, an end by date for the production of all fossil fuel motors. And they're pushed along by the German government in this because mm. the German government doesn't want to see VW go broke. Uh, they've marked an end date, which is only a couple of years away for the production of all internal combustion engine cars. And they have produced the first few hundred thousand of a modularized electric motor with only a, you know, a couple of dozen moving parts in it. Uh, it fits in a duffel bag and they are on their way to producing 20 million of those units for you know, one to three years production. So they have designed and built their own uh, electric motor. It's modularized. And the answer to the question is because the electric motor, if you think about an electric car, it really doesn't have anything like the number of engine parts that an internal combustion engine has. I mean, you know this because when you open up the bonnet where the motor is supposed to be, there's nothing there. It's just, you can put your luggage in there just like you can put it in the back. So all those parts are gone. And so what, what is clear from watching the Tesla margins is that the margins for electric cars are going to be significantly higher and particularly mm. for a scale producer like VW. And so we're in VW as the... I mean, people think that Tesla will get to 10 million cars in five or 10 years. We think that VW will get to five or 10 million electric cars in three to four years. And that's why we're playing it for the economies of scale that come to that. So um, we're very excited about that investment, actually. We don't hold a big position in it uh, because, you know, we're still working through some issues, et cetera. But mm. that will be the scale player, we believe. Yeah, some interesting insights there, Alex. And continuing on the topic of cars, I've looked at the entire holdings of the Loftus Peak Disruption Fund, and I noticed that there was a company that wasn't in there, Uber. You know, in my view, I think this company, Uber, it seems to fit the, the profile of a global disruptive business. You know, it's revolutionized the transport sector, you know, such as taxis. You know, I can't remember the last time I ordered a taxi. Finally, yet, uh, a couple of days ago, I ordered Uber Eats. You know, it's really changed that whole transport sector. So I'm curious, though, how come you don't own Uber in the portfolio? That's a very good question, Marty. We don't own it because for the longest time, it was just a rideshare company. And there were plenty of rideshare companies coming, Didi, Ola, Grab. And then there was a whole bunch of stuff going on around, you know, rideshare safety, et cetera, et cetera. And it required a pivot on the part of Uber into things like eats and, you know, food and, and, and a bunch of other horizontals as well. And to be honest, we sort of think of it as a company in search of a business, right? <laughs> because... There's plenty of Eats businesses. I mean, there's, mm. you know, Menulog and DoorDash and there's a stack mm. of them. And so, so it's a very low barrier to entry space. The rideshare business itself is a low, low barriers to entry space. And so we were never really all that comfortable with the amount of pivoting that the company had to do. And if you look at the, that business, it's a very, very different business from a number of the other things that we hold, which have much more concrete holds on mm. the business that they are actually rolling out. So, so I, you know, we, we could have made money out of Uber, but it didn't really fit. We can't make money on everything, right? So, you know, <laughs> that doesn't, we have to choose the 30 best companies, so to speak, and they just didn't make the cut. That's not to say anything about Uber. I think mm. they've done a great job, frankly, pivoting as fast as they did, but it didn't make our metrics, so we didn't. Don't worry, Alex, you, you've won me over. <laughs> So Alex, there, there is a part of the portfolio, and this is going to be, I think it might be a bit of a curveball. Um, there is a part of the portfolio we haven't covered, uh, and that's really your exposure to China. 
which I believe is a key theme in disruption, you know, that, that's given China's size and, and its power. And, you know, look at the portfolio. I believe the portfolio is 10% exposure to China. And, you know, you hold position in companies such as Alibaba, Tencent. So I was curious, you know, there's a lot of going on with China, you know, with Evergrande, that default, and in particular, the Chinese government looking to, to crack down on some of its largest companies. And you've mentioned, you know, DD, that's one example, Tencent as well. What are some of the potential impacts of, of the situations, all these events occurring on your portfolio? Terrific question. So, and the answer to the question is, by the way, we're no longer at 10%. Uh, we've okay. significantly cut that position. In fact, it's under half that. And, and we cut that position for a very simple reason. We used to hold 25% of the portfolio in China stocks. You know, we made great returns out of that for a number of years. The Politburo, Chinese government, has basically saying, okay, and, and I'm, I have no argument with this, right? This is just the way it is. They have said that the cult of the entrepreneur is not appropriate under the Communist Party system. And so what they are saying is more of the return that's generated by these companies has to come back to the Chinese people and the Chinese government and less has to go to the shareholders. Well, we were shareholders. So as that mm. rhetoric became increasingly the case, uh, what it actually did is it, it raised the discount rate for us. It mm. forced us to raise the discount rate for Chinese investments. That lowered the valuation and we, you know, we started selling and, and sold quite a number of them. So the answer to the question is the Chinese government changed the bargain away from the shareholders, us, towards the people of China, and that's fair enough. But it meant that it was no longer as, as attractive as it had been. Alex, I'm about to throw you another curveball. One of my favourite topics and something that seems to pop up on the AFI every day. You guessed it, it's inflation. Hot topic at the moment for many investors. And, you know, whilst central banks such as the RBA and the Fed, they've been pretty adamant that inflation is transitory. Um, you know, once those supply shocks have resolved themselves, inflation will be within that target. But they don't think interest rate rises will occur until sometime in 2024. But, you know, it's been interesting watching the battle between the RBA and investors. Investors seem to think otherwise. With bond yields at record heights. I believe the 10 year Treasury bond reached its highest yield since pre pandemic. So I guess my question, my question to you is, you know, with the current rising inflation and pressure, you know, and because you use that DCF model um, and likely if inflation rises, you will have to apply that a higher discount rate. Are there any themes or sectors that you're either avoiding or considering, Alex? You're absolutely correct. The rise in inflation means a higher discount rate and a higher discount rate results in lower valuations. But the most important part about that is that it results in the lowest valuations on the companies with the most risk. The companies with the least risk, in other words, with earnings that are close, not far, have the least negative impact. So in this environment, our approach with respect to rising inflation is to push towards companies with good and growing cash flows over companies that have got very long duration business models that might take five to 10 years to emerge. It's not to say that we won't still hold a couple of these businesses at low rates, one or 2%, but the best protection against inflation, well, real estate is one, you know, gold is another maybe, but then if you're going to be in the stock market and, you know, returns in the stock market are traditionally good, if you're going to be in the stock market, then the best place to be is at the companies with the best business models. They will outperform those because they'll have less um, medium term impact from a rise in interest rates. Plus, they're not borrowers. The best companies are not borrowers and they don't really require any equity funding either. Yeah. So 
they, you know, are not likely to be dis- diluted. I mean, Amazon hasn't, not Amazon, Apple, you name it, they haven't had an equity issue since they listed. So um, I'm not just saying we're in those companies, although we are, but we obviously, you know, we're in a stack of others besides. But there are, a, you know, Qualcomm's a great example, right? Qualcomm hasn't had an issue in, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So we think it will weather an inflationary spike better than companies that say don't have earnings in three, for three or four or five years from now. So inflation isn't keeping you up at night? <laughs> no. I mean, it's it's definitely something that we are thinking yeah. about a lot. But we've managed through Trump, mm. rising bond yields anyway, chip shortages, mm. China problems a few years ago with the trade wars. I mean, we managed through all this stuff mm. and we generate return notwithstanding those problems. Mm. So we will, we will manage through it. And that's we're actively moving the portfolio right now literally, you know, overnight and, mm. and have been for the number of weeks to uh, manage for this. And Alex, you know, it's been a really insightful conversation and I've learned a lot of today and hopefully our listeners have learned a lot today as well. For anyone here that's looking to follow your work and learn a bit more about Loftus Peak and your active ETF, can you tell us where they can go to? Yes. Well, the active ETF and the code is uh, LPGD, Loftus Peak Global Disruption, is available on the ASX. Uh, you just type in LPGD. And you buy it just like you buy a share. So what we say to people is if, if you want access to Qualcomm or Apple or um, you know, Roku or any one of the 30 different stocks, you could go and buy them yourself, sure, and that would be terrific. But if you, you, you could just buy one security and all the stocks are, are in there in one go and got exposure to it, and that's um, good. Um, we do a little bit on LinkedIn and the website itself, Loftus Peak Global Disruption, has lots and lots of resources that, that explains who we are and what we think. And plus, it's got you know, seven years of return data, et cetera. Alex, that pretty much wraps up this month's episode. Again, happy one-year anniversary. Thanks for jump, jumping on and having a chat. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime in the future. Thanks, Marty. Really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alex and learned a bit about disruptive companies as well as the investment case for these type of companies. In next month's episode, I'll be joined by Morgan Potter and Gordon Reid from Nine Mile Financial, who are one of Australia's key market makers in the ETF ecosystem, as we learn more about a common question that we often get from investors. Who in the world are market makers and what do they do? Until then, stay safe and we'll see you next month. Are you keen to learn more? Why not visit the ASX blog, asx.com.au slash blog, for a wide range of articles, videos and insights from ASX experts, listed companies and investment professionals. ASX Limited ABN 9800862691 and its related bodies corporate, ASX, makes content available for podcast, content, and the content may be downloaded on these conditions. ASX grants a non-exclusive license to download the content for private and non-commercial use only. You may not use the content for any other purpose, including without limitation distribution to a third party or implying a connection between you or any third party and ASX, its offices, employees or contractors. The views, opinions or recommendations of the author or speaker in the content are solely those of the author or speaker and do not in any way reflect the views, opinions
opinions, recommendations of ASX. The content is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decisions. ASX does not give any representation or warranty with respect to the accuracy, reliability, completeness or currency of the content. To the extent permitted by law, ASX and its employees, officers and contractors are not liable for any loss or damage arising in any way, including by way of negligence, from or in connection with any information provided or omitted or from anyone acting or refraining to act in reliance on this information. 